The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Yeah. Um, all donations do go to the project, by the way. Um, we support ourselves on that. Um, we've been able, thanks to IMC and a number of organizations, to work for 14 years making our own mistakes and not the mistakes some 28-year-old working for USAID in Washington designed for us. And we are exceedingly grateful for that. (laughs) And we make plenty of mistakes. And we're also allowed to admit them. Um, Today, my topic is being in the present. And it's an impossible topic. I don't know why I signed up for it. (laughs) Actually, I do know why I signed up for it. In April, I was at very, very, very low ebb, and I went to a monastery I know in Thailand run by Prabhupada Visalo. And I I saw Prabhupada for a day before he had to be in China. And I started to tell him all my woes, and he said, try to let go of them and just be present. You know. It's going to be hard, but just try to let go of them and just be present. And that was hell. (laughs) But it freed me of a lot of preconceptions and concerns that I had been clinging to very, very tightly. And that was wonderful. So, I'm not going to be very coherent today. I hope I leave enough time for people to sort of spot the holes and yell at me. Uh, But I want to do bits and pieces. Okay. Um, The four foundations of mindfulness teach us this broad range of ways to bring ourselves into the presence of what is happening in our body and mind and tell us where precisely in those events, suffering occurs. To use one of the easier examples, there's sound, there's hearing. We experience that sound as pleasant or unpleasant, but there's a huge debate, and most people agree, that the sound itself is neutral. So that the pleasant or unpleasant is coming from us. It's something that we're adding. And that as we learn not to add it, the sound itself 
becomes much clearer. And that's true of everything. But most things aren't quite that nice and simple and discreet. (laughs) I have a friend who's a Feldenkrais practitioner. She's a wonderful practitioner. And what she works with is you may have had an injury in your body 20 years ago, right? Now, the injury is long gone. But when you were injured, you adapted to it. You shifted your shoulder, you did something. And then when you adapted to it, the rest of your body added another adaptation and another adaptation and another adaptation and another adaptation. And so by the time you're 20 years later, there's this whole complex of adaptations to something that no longer exists. And in order to heal, you need to look at each adaptation specifically in turn and work with each adaptation, not as some kind of goal-directed, well, let's get through this, but as what it is And as you work with that adaptation and you become free of it, then the next mess arises. Now, I know that I am the only one in this room who, when I look at my mind, sees a mess. (laughs) And the key turning that we learn in Vipassana is to get away from the stories we tell us about that mess and into the actual physical, mental physical, because the mind is one of the six senses, experience of that mess. Okay? Now, when I was here last year, Gil was talking a lot about non-conflict. Okay. Um, He doesn't like the word acceptance because of the kind of fatalism and passivity that come with it in English, that don't come with it in in Buddhism, in in Pali. Um, I had been sort of working with the word acknowledgement, and I was a bit clinging to it. But over the year, I've let go of it. So as each mess arises, our job is to let it be what it is and to see it, to see it clearly and not in some teleological fashion, well, if I can get through this mess, then everything's going to be fixed, but just to see what it is. And as we see it, then we begin to disidentify from it. We begin the slow process of realizing anatta, of realizing not self. 
as we dis- dis- disengage from the mess and we disengage from identifying with the mess, we find that really there isn't a whole lot to engage with. Slowly, step by step, step by step. You know, in this lifetime it's taken me a huge amount of time to get to, you know, what seems to me awfully, awfully basic. So I'm really hoping for enough lifetimes (laughs) to actually clarify things. Because I'm going to be 70 soon and my mind isn't what it used to be. (laughs) There was a very great monk in Cambodia. His name was Mahagosananda. And he was the embodiment of loving kindness and of courage. And when he was young, he knew 13 languages. And when he was senile, he could use them all in one sentence that nobody could understand. (laughs) But Blanche Hartman tells a story of seeing him at a conference shortly before he died. And he had to have someone with him because he would lose his way when he went to the bathroom or anywhere. I mean, he'd forget where he was and just start wandering around. But she said that even in that condition, he would fill a room 10 times this size with so much palpable loving kindness that everyone was transformed by it. When I first met him in 1993, I found myself well-behaved. It was shocking. (laughs) It was inconceivable for me to swear or get angry or be anything but totally reverent or polite. (laughs) Of course, as soon as I got out of there, I went back to me. Um, So on this retreat, I've gone back to April of this year. Andrea Fella had very kindly given me some books by Ute Janaya, and I took one with me since I was going to be doing self-retreat. And for those of you who are experienced with the four, Four Foundations of Mindfulness, He works very much with the third foundation, mindfulness of mind states. And with seeing your greed as it comes up. Now that greed contains aversion and disregard. And... That was really hard work for a couple of days because I was in this gorgeous forest and there were troops of monkeys. There were mommy monkeys with little babies clinging to them and there were adolescent monkeys 
and there was this one little old gray monkey who was following at the back of the troop who must have been my age. <laughs> and they used to troop over the roof of my house. It was their regular route. At a great little house, it had a very arched tin roof and then a very broad tin roof, which meant that I could be completely outside when it was raining with no trouble at all. And you could see the pads in the roof where the monkeys were always going and the squirrels were always going. And it broke my heart that after they knew I was there, they stopped coming. And I had to watch them brachiating. Does everyone know brachiating? Brachiating is that thing monkeys do when they take an arm and they take a leg or they take a tail and they swing from one tree branch to another like some kind of miracle or they drop and catch themselves. So I had to watch them from a distance, and I felt very sorry for myself. <laughs> Greed. <laughs> Greed. <laughs> Greed. <laughs> Greed. <laughs> So in order to arrive at where we already are, I'm almost quoting T.S. Eliot now, to arrive at where we are is what he actually says. We need to go through so many places that we think we ought to be, that we want to be, that we have ideas about, that we have longings for. And then my favorite, the ones we hate. All those things that we really don't want to acknowledge, don't want to see. Okay? And the miraculous things about the things we don't want to see. And this may just be me you know, but, you know, when we want something that's really nice, we feel very ordinary in wanting it, right? Of course I want that, it's beautiful. Yeah. I want total, complete, and utter liberation without giving up anything. What could be more normal? <laughs> But when I'm jealous, that's another matter. When I feel, when I'm jealous, then first of all, it's the other person's fault. And secondly, I'm isolated. One of the characteristics of the feelings that we don't want to acknowledge are that they take us away from the human community. And that's very painful. I mean, you know, to put it in the vernacular, that really sucks. <laughs> so that when we're meditating, and what comes up is our anguish, and our fear, and our anger, 
and our jealousy and our pain. Those are not the places that we really feel like dwelling. And those are the places where non-conflict is of inestimable value. Where it is a miraculous gift if we can allow those states to be and disengage from them. It's not my jealousy, it's just jealousy. And that's not cheating. (laughs) The moment I disidentify, the moment I disown that, the moment I see it as jealousy, the moment I see it as the result of causes and conditions, and not of who I am uniquely in the universe, then it stops being toxic. It's just there. Okay, so so far I've made no sense at all, right? I've told a few jokes, but I haven't made any sense. Um, That's okay. (laughs) I just got off a long plane ride. (laughs) That's my excuse. Even if I hadn't gotten off a long plane ride, I wouldn't be making any sense. So don't take that junk for belief. Um, I want to talk a little bit about some of the specific pain that we've had this year. And I want to talk about it not so that everybody can feel how lucky they are to live in America and not Cambodia, but so that the people who just got socks for Native Americans who otherwise would lose their legs to diabetes, who are realizing that the need for medical care in this country is as great, not as exciting or sexy, but as great as the need for medical care in the third world. The people who are beginning to see that we are one community can begin to make, because a lot of you are activists. This is a community that has a lot of social activists in it. And a lot of you face stuff every single day that I couldn't take. It's really hard. I could maybe learn to take it over time, but you know, you know, my life is relatively easy. Okay. Um, Tiny example. Tiny example where I'm going to brag. Our patients who do not have family and cannot take care of themselves in the hospitals are given 
caregivers. And the organization that does that is totally corrupt. And the caregivers who work for it are not a whole lot better. So many of the things that desperately need to be done aren't done. And in the evenings, for example, the caregivers are all out drinking. They're not, they're taking care of the patients. And we live with that and we're used to that. And there's not much we can do about that. There are a number of patients where we supply the caregivers, but where caregivers are eligible from other organizations, the other organizations are responsible for them and would be very angry with us if we provided them because they're providing jobs for their own people. And when they provide jobs for their own people, they get a cut. <laughs> when we provide jobs, they don't get a cut. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> when people are <clears throat> unable to... Okay, AIDS patients, multidrug-resistant tuberculosis patients, regular tuberculosis patients, cancer patients, mostly cancer patients with AIDS. Um, we've been wanting to go into the cancer ward, but it's still too difficult. Um, prisons, we just inherited 37 pregnant and breastfeeding women from an organization that just left. Okay, and one baby with AIDS. And uh, also, that 37 includes a dozen women with AIDS. Some of those women were not pregnant when they got to prison. But, you know, one out of three women in the army is raped, and very few of them report it. So, uh, sometimes I think Cambodia and America are much more alike than they are different, except that it's cheaper to live in Cambodia. <laughs> so one of the things we provide is soy milk. Soy milk is fabulous. Soy milk is the chicken soup of Southeast Asia. Yeah. People who cannot digest anything else, who are at the point of death from malnutrition, are able to digest soy milk and survive because of it. Okay? So when I found out that the caregivers were stealing the soy milk, I'm doing a vipassana, a keto on that. And what I feel is this absolutely frozen thing in the pit of my stomach. It's so frozen, it almost feels like a knife. Yeah. Okay. Should we go to their bosses? Well, their bosses are just as corrupt. Can we go to the patients? The patients are helpless. 
I investigated further. It turned out that there are two caregivers who are actually doing most of the stealing. And one of them is someone we almost hired six years ago because he was one of the best caregivers in the place. But, you know, he's burned out really badly. And he's surrounded by people who are corrupt, and he doesn't, like, have a lot of resistance. So yesterday, no, it was the day before yesterday. Yesterday I slept. <laughs> the day before yesterday, I started at 3 o'clock in the morning Cambodia time and ended at 3 o'clock in the afternoon Cambodia time which was around 10 or 11 here, okay? So it was a long day. And in that time, I found time to get to the hospital and see some people I wanted to see. And I saw Soy Tree. That's his name. And I got him off by himself. And I said, you know, we've known you a really long time. And we've always had a tremendous respect for you because of the way that you love the patients, because of the way you take care of the patients. You know, we wanted you to work with us, but you were happier here. So, you know. And when I hear that you are drinking soy milk that belongs to the patients, it breaks my heart. The Cambodian phrase is bat jet. And what it really means is broken, lost, gone forever. And jet is both heart and mind. And he said, well, he gave it to me. I said, so tree, look at you. You're fat, you're healthy. You're strong. I don't care if he gave it to you. You give it back. <laughs> you shouldn't be accepting that. Now, I knew for a fact that nobody had given it to him because that particular patient had given it to the patient in the next bed to guard so the soy tree wouldn't steal it. But I wasn't going to raise, raise that issue. All right? Still working? Who no. <laughs> <laughs> can compete with you? Comedy Central. <laughs> yeah. Is that okay? I don't know. <laughs> Is it working? Is it working? Yes. Okay. Um, so I said, look, promise me, you know, Promise me that you're not going to do this anymore. I said, you know, we have so much love for you and so much respect for you, and it hurts us so much to lose that. So either he will or he won't. He'll either steal or not. There's probably a 60% chance he won't. 
But what I just gave you an example of is the Cambodian style of working with the problem. And the Cambodian style of working with the problem is one that absolutely and totally gives every appropriate regard to the person that you're in conflict with and brings the conflict itself into the context of that regard so that what can be done can be done with integrity and ease. It's taken me 18 years to learn how to do that. I was so proud of myself, I went and bragged to my staff. <laughs> I said, I saw a, tr- saw a tree today, and guess what I did? <laughs> I also saw another patient that I'm going to speak ill of another organization right now. I'm sorry. And I'm going to speak ill of an organization that all of us have tremendous respect for and that in many parts of the work does brilliant and wonderful work. But Mother Teresa's male missionaries have decided that their hospice is not for the dying. That when someone is dying... They throw them into the hospital. They do not support them. They do not visit them. They do not do anything for them. They just simply throw them away. So we have a patient who's been there for a month, and my staff has been taking really good care. And when we have these things called poor cards, that if you're certified destitute, you get a certain amount of care, and then you have to be thrown out of the hospital and be put back in before you can get more care. And there was no place to go. Sometimes we've rented rooms, sometimes we've had spaces, but there was just no place for him to go. So my brilliant director um, paid the hospital for five days, after which he got back on his poor card. So he could just stay there and not be disturbed. And we brought him a really nice Buddha and some stuff um, just before I left. Um, He's going. There's no way back for him. What there is is only the possible peacefulness of heart. And all of my staff are working really, really hard with him to help him find that. And the betrayal has not helped. So we minimize it. We just don't pay any attention to it. We treat him like somebody who came in like anyone else. Okay? Um, During the past year, Our responsibilities have gotten insane. (laughs) 
I mean, I told you about the 37 extra patients at the women's prison. Okay. Um, in April, all the supplies of Ampitericin B. Okay, that's a drug. That's a drug that runs 19 or $20 a bottle in Cambodia. I can't imagine what it costs here. It is the one drug that has any real effect against cryptococcal meningitis once cryptococcal... Crypt, okay, it's a fungus that lives in the body. As your immune system deteriorates, it can clog up your mouth, it can clog up your throat, it can clog up your, your lungs, it can go up your spine, into your brain, and kill you in an excruciatingly painful way. There's another drug that helps when it's not so severe, but ampitericin is the drug when it is severe. And all of the country's supplies of ampitericin B expired at the end of April. Period. All of them. And the government has not gotten around to ordering any new medicines, let alone ampitericin B. But the problem with ampitericin is that normally we can go and buy it privately. But because the government had supplied it for a year, none of the pharmacies had it. And you can't order it in batches of under 200. Okay? So I wrote to my wonderful Australian donors, and I said, give me $12,000. (laughs) It's $4,000. It's going to be six months before we get any. You know, I'll keep it in a special fund. If we get it, you know, you get it back or we use it for, you know, we agree with you what happens to it. I got an answer in an hour and the money was in the bank in two days. Okay. And then we had to get the drug. Now, we had three cases. Two of those cases were being kept barely alive by one of the really brilliant doctors we know. And the third case came down from the provinces not knowing he had AIDS. And this is a terminal illness you get. I mean, the whole education system has collapsed. Um, found out there was no medicine and went home to die. It took us a week to get the drug in. Since the drug came in, we have had 15 cases of cryptococcal meningitis. Two of them were complicated by brain tuberculosis and one of them possibly by another. Thirteen of them have lived. Thirteen of them have lived. Now I want you thinking about the people who can't get essential drugs in the States. Because at least the government, although it doesn't follow through, takes theoretical responsibility for providing it. 
And there isn't a huge lobby that says you shouldn't. All right. So we've taken that on. We've taken on providing the National AIDS Hospital with about $200 worth of drugs every month that include diarrhea pills, pain pills, um, all kinds of very, very ordinary drugs. I forget the name of the one that you use for herpes because herpes is real common with AIDS. Um, You know, there have been apparently, as far as we can tell, no drugs ordered at all, and we still don't have a government. So if and when the government takes power, and if it takes power without having a civil war, then it may be January before any drugs get get ordered. So people come to us. You know, they come to us because we're one of the few organizations that's still there. And they come to us because we're honest. They come to us because our, our reputation for integrity and credibility is as strong as it could possibly be. And our financial reports are open to anyone. And anyone who is interested, just email me. Get one of our two-page project reports. Email me. And you can have, like, the whole thing from 2012. (laughs) Um, Or 2011 or 10 or 9. What's this got to do with anything? What this has to do with anything is every single time we sit down, which is every day before we go out, we don't see patients without meditating first. And on Wednesdays, we spend the whole day in Dhamma study. We need to work through not only what's happening in our own lives, in our own families, in our own hearts, But we need to work through yesterday's huge pain about what's going on in the hospitals so that we can come to where we can be helpful with hearts that are as filled with compassion as is possible. Because and I'm going to just swing this around again because I got a minute. Or I got a minute on this clock. I don't know if I got a minute on Martha's clock because hers is a minute ahead of me. Um, Most of us have had the experience from time to time of becoming fully present. Of disappearing of having the world become tremendously clear and have the energies work through us that are necessary. Our job, in this sense, is to transform our lives, to use the tools we're given 
to transform our lives so as much time, as much energy, as much space as possible can be given for that. We all have all these ideas about how we're going to heal the world. Well, you know, so did Stalin. (laughs) I went into human rights because human rights is a way of seeing what ideology costs the people who pay for it. (laughs) Not the people who, you know, design it. But when we are present, or to the degree that we are present, because none of this is a zero-sum game. We all know this. We do a little bit, you know, and it moves us one way. We do a little bit the other, it moves us the other way. We do it imperfectly all the time. And occasionally we get these breakthroughs. And once we all become Buddhas, then we'll be broken through all the time. (laughs) but in the meantime we just continue trying right but the value of presence the particular value of presence for me on that retreat is I let go of things that had been driving me crazy for years I just let go of them I have no answers for them they just aren't questions for me anymore. You know? Uh, the value of it is that it is the ground of freedom. It is the ground of compassion. It is the ground, God help me for even mentioning the word, since I'm the poster child for its opposite of equanimity. <laughs> you know? It's the ground of what the Buddha promises us when he talks about liberation from suffering. Liberation from suffering is not some kind of narcissistic hedonism. Liberation from suffering is total participation in what is present without any sense of self holding you back, holding us back. So I want to thank you for coming and thank you for putting up with me. (laughs) And it's always such a treat to be here (laughs) because it's such a wonderful group of practitioners. You new people, I know you feel the support of the older people already. The older people, you know, there's a cadre of teachers developing in this institution that is mind-boggling. Just mind-boggling. Yeah. And it's just a privilege. It's it's an honor to be invited every year and I thank you very much. Okay. Do we have time for questions or not? <coughs> I think we need to let, let those who need to go go. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. <coughs> yeah, people who have to be places should go. Yes. Oh, yeah, all those temple cleaners, man. All that hard work that's got to happen.